Welcome to Podcasts on Demand, a continuing medical education activity. This activity includes the most recent and current clinical data presented by leading experts. If you are seeking continuing education credit, please review the disclosures and the requirements for a successful completion of the activity prior to listening to the podcast. A link is found in the podcast description that can direct you to this information. Thank you for joining us for Conversation in Hematology Oncology. During this segment, we'll be discussing recommendations to incorporate recent evidence into practice. I am Dr. Gilles Sal from Memorial St. Catherine uh, Cancer Center in New York, and I'm joined by my uh, friend and colleague, Dr. Matt Leoning from the University of uh, 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 Nebraska. What we'll discuss today is how the data that have been accumulating uh, over recent months and have been uh, discussed during the ASH meeting will fit into the way we manage patients uh, with follicular lymphoma. So we heard about some targeted agents. Uh, there have been approval of agents. Some agents were withdrawn from the market recently. We have had safety data updated for uh, epigenetic modifier, CAR T-cell therapy, bispecific antibodies. Dr. Lenning, how do you see the field evolving? How do you see the uh, all the tools that we have in our hands and uh, uh, how we can compare the efficacy and the burden of some treatment for our patients with follicular lymphoma. Yeah, I think follicular lymphoma is getting to be a crowded space. And, and when I look at my template and I'm trying to patient template for going into clinic, if I have a full relapse of refractory follicular lymphoma patient and I know that they're going to need you know therapy, um, I got to block out an extra 20 minutes just to go through kind of all the data and all the options and really it comes down to, you know, patient discernment, right? Making that decision with your patient and having an active discussion. Because yes, we do now have cellular therapy like CAR T-cell, both AxiCell and T-cell. And I would assume, uh, based upon the data uh, presented at ASH 2023, 20, uh, that Lysacell is going to enter this mix. You have CAR T-cell, one-and-done therapy with, uh, you know, a high overall response rate and a high CR rate. I think the CR rate, you know, just like in large cell lymphoma, uh, is going to drive the enthusiasm for this uh, therapy. Now, the question is, is, you know, with what price? Uh, not only the financial, you know, potential toxicity, but also the price uh, that, that comes with some of the side effects. Those side effects early on may be cytokine release syndrome, I think we alluded to and talked about in the earlier segment, you know, I really pay attention more to the risk of neurotoxicity, especially grade three, four neurotoxicity, because in advanced age individual, that grade of neurotoxicity is likely life altering toxicity, meaning that for the short term, they may end up in a skilled nursing facility or need intensive amounts of, of rehab uh, coming out of uh, their, their CAR T cell. We also have to think about the prolonged cytopenias and the infection risks. I think we've seen further and further data uh, that, that, yes, patients may hang out with hemoglobins of 9 and 10 and platelets between 75 and 125. So their bottoms are not in a chair getting transfusions. But I think one of the things that comes up is, you know, truly what is the risk of neutropenia and then infections? And in an era where infections are kind of within us and all around us, despite our vaccines, we really don't know the, you know, the robust activity of those vaccines in this patient population. So again, I think that we have to be very choosy around CAR T-cells uh, in follicular lymphoma. Speaking of kind of going back to bispecifics, which we know most in 
you know, has activity and has been uh, approved. We saw some uh, epiritumab uh, data here, and we also saw some combination data. What I like about mosinituzumab and follicular lymphoma is that it is a fixed duration therapy. If you get through the step up dosing and then you get to, you know, eight, uh, the eighth cycle and you're in a complete response, you can put that back up on the shelf. I think I find that B cell recovery data sort of reassuring. Um, but I also am concerned about, you know, if that relapse does occur, is that relapse going to be a relapse that I could, you know, give another CD20 uh, antibody uh, to? Um, with regards to its efficacy, you know, I think that it, it uh, does, uh, you know, kind of speak to whether or not it needs a partner. And I think, you know, lenalidomide, when it is combined with other agents, I think we can use the analogy of tafacitumab lenalidomide, where it appeared lenalidomide was bringing a lot of the toxicity and tafacitumab was bringing, you know, additive efficacy, but not a lot. And I think we're going to see the same theme uh, here when you add lenalidomide to a lot of these uh, agents, whether or not it's EPCO, whether or not it's Mosin, as we, as we have seen, driving some hematologic uh, toxicities. Well, you, you were talking about duration of treatment, and I think that's obviously an important concern we may have. Um, you have used mosinitinizumab now for a couple of years in clinical trial and in clinical practice. Um, you know, this is a, a schema where patient will be treated with eight cycles, six months if they reach a CR, and 17, so one year of treatment if they are only a PR. In your experience, are, are, what are the proportion of patients where you can complete the treatment by six months? Yeah, I think that that's... <laughs> um... I think that you do get a fair number of patients, probably over half that can get, you know, put that drug back on the shelf. I think really the data that we're all looking for is for those patients that do have a relapse when you put the drug back on the shelf, whether or not CD20 is expressed and whether or not you can pull mosinituzumab, you know, back off and achieve the same, you know, response. And then what do you do? Right. Is it kind of like a little bit of a resort based approach, you know, where you kind of do it for six months and then you put it back on the shelf, it comes back. And are you going to see like you do with rituximab monotherapy and follicular lymphoma, the law of diminishing returns? Right. While the toxicity may uh, may not be there, are you starting to you know find efficacy issues? And I think that's really going to be one of those interesting pieces that maybe it's it's most in single agent the first time, but maybe it's most in LEN the second time. And I think that's what we're going to miss in, in the setting of the clinical trials is really that opportunity uh, to kind of see that we're going to get a, maybe a little bit of the clinical trial before the horse here and really trying to figure out where is the best time uh, to add a, you know, have dual agents or, or triple uh, when you probably in follicular lymphoma could get away with just one therapy. Um, I think, you know, morning sun trial, you know, those early frontline trials um, are going to kind of uh, be our first dip in the toe of the water um, to kind of say, can you continue to give it second and can you give it a third? And how do we really count lines of therapy? Uh, um, I think people have debates still about how to count lines of therapy when you're using our monotherapy in follicular lymphoma. Do, do you have any concern regarding any other side effect with bispecific? We heard some data regarding infections. Um, are there any unknown things that are appearing or is it overall rather reassuring? 
Yeah, I think that once you kind of uh, you can get onto autopilot uh, with a lot of these five specifics, you get through kind of the early step up dosing. And I think what's interesting about each one of these agents is they kind of each have their own little flavor, right? Whether or not, you know, I know we're not uh, talking a lot about glofitimab, but, you know, it comes with an obinutuzumab lead in and that cycle one day eight, you know, is your highest risk of CRS versus epcaritimab. Uh, you know, where you get to that cycle one, day 15 dosing. There was some optimization dosing done uh, at ASH 2023 where they really added an extra dose. And it was more so to try and get rid of that grade three CRS event. And what you really saw was migration towards uh, grade one CRS with that addition of that third uh, um, kind of inserted step-up dose and the full dose uh, with that fourth dose. And I think that that really is, is kind of an important addition because I think we all are starting to get comfortable, uh, um, at least in the academic setting, with these, with these therapies. The other piece that I think we need to add in there is the steroid component. There is steroids uh, kind of given not only with the day of, but also three days after with epcaritimab. And I think there's been some di little bit of dosing strategy uh, here around, you know, what what steroid it is and at, and at what dose. But if you're having CRS on steroids, I think that's a little bit different than if you're not having, uh, if you're having CRS and not on steroids. And I think that's one of the caveats that we have to pay attention to, not only with mosinituzumab, which uh, from that regard doesn't require hospitalization. Um, and in my mind, it's not using steroids. So if you're having CRS uh, after Mosin, you know, what is your management strategy versus if you're having CRS on EPCO, your strategy may be uh, slightly uh, different. I think the other piece that we haven't really sorted out about biospecifics is uh, how do we predict who has grade one CRS and when they're going to at higher risk for having grades two or three. And I think grade two CRS still is something that you have to intervene on, whether or not it is, you know, a slight hypoxia uh, or hypotension uh, in that regard. And so really you have to uh, kind of be have a trustworthy patient and a good team to kind of be able to sort through, you know, what patients need to be brought in versus what patients can be can be monitored. Yeah, I think that's really a very good summary of uh, how we handle those. And uh, I will say that more and more in our practice, uh, this mosinotuzumab treated patient with follicular lymphoma treated, um, you know, without any hospitalization. Um, we may bring back some patients a day after or eventually late at night, but I hate to bring patients late at night. So I mean, they go with uh, dexamethasone in their pocket, and I encourage them to take them until the next morning when we reevaluate them. And I think uh, most of us will do the same in the near future. And probably the dose of um, steroids and the amount, the quality of the steroids that you said uh, can be optimized to continue to reinforce that. And maybe with the sub two formulation, we'll have also uh, uh, some other things. But you know, you addressed some things that was very important, which is. You know, we have CAR-T, we have bispecifics. Both of them are approved right now in the third line setting after, let's say, rituximab or immunochemo after R-square. So, you know, what, 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 is there a particular sequence you like? Yeah, I, I do still put bispecifics in the third line before CAR-T, unless I get the sense that that follicular lymphoma is on the path to transformation. You know, and I think that that's one of the things that, you know, I think we've learned from, especially from the pod 24 data. And one of the things that I educate on is, you know, if you're, you're thinking about relapse refractory flicker lymphoma, you've got to be, you know, 
monitoring for that transformation to large cell lymphoma. I think PET scans can be incredibly important. I'm looking for that Sesame Street lymph node. Which one of these does not look like the other? Uh, and I think that that's key to the, uh, you know, kind of um, controlling or corralling uh, that disease. You don't want let you don't want follicular lymphoma to get out of control and it gets out of control when it is in the midst of transformation and you're giving follicular lymphoma therapy for, uh, for really what is a, a transformed uh, follicular, follicular lymphoma. Um, you know, with regards to bi you know, biospecifics in, in that area, you know, I think that um, really for me, I think I have confidence that I can give biospecifics after a CAR-T. I mean, that's what I've been doing in large cell lymphoma. I think, you know, I can give CAR-T cell after uh, biospecifics, but there's ye of little data. Uh, from that standpoint, to know kind of a lot of the T cell fitness uh, uh, manufacturing out of specific uh, out of spec, uh, so I think that that's what we're going to see probably within the next couple of years at Ash. But I'm not sure that it's going to be in the in the realm of a clinical trial. I think it's probably going to come in the realm of of uh, uh, real world, you know, uh, um, putting our our databases together uh, to try and get this uh, to get this answer. Yeah, actually, there was I think some data coming from Europe and from France or, or France and other countries looking at that and mentioning like 40 or 50 patients that receive CAR-T after bispecific, but the interval between both were, were, were quite large. Um, you know, we didn't touch upon all these small molecules that we have been using for years. Um, so can you tell us in a few minutes, first of all, what happened to the last PI3 kinase that was available? And secondly, where do you see it as a metastat, which is approved, fitting in this scheme? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, we, you're alluding to the PI3 kinase class, which we've just seen, you know, uh, be whittled away to, uh, you know, nothing in relapsed refractory uh, follicular lymphoma. And, you know, I think that they're being replaced by other active agents. So in one on one realm, I'm disappointed that a class has been taken away, but on the flip side, you know, it's being replaced with, I think, equally, if not more effective, uh, um, you know, therapies. Uh, I think the nice, the therapy that's going to kind of slide right in there, in my anticipation, is going to be Xanabrutinib. I think the Rosewood data, while it wasn't, to my knowledge, presented at ASH, I think looks pretty impressive and is now moving into, you know, uh, randomized clinical uh, clinical trials to further uh, assess that that efficacy. I think tazmetostat, you know, is there as a single agent. I just wonder, you know, if I'm going to have to use tazmetostat in regards to as a bridge therapy. If I have somebody that's progressing after a biospecific, let's say in third line, you know, we know that that our approved CAR T cells they don't grow on trees, right? It takes some time for them to uh, uh, get access to it. Um, the vein to vein time is still of relevance, uh, and it's a fairly you know well tolerated drug. Um, and so you know, tazmetostat as a bridge, I think it could control the disease. Um, you know, I think we are learning that the size of the disease or the volume of the disease probably matters. So um, even if it's, you know, GELF criteria type disease, if I can keep it under control, the patient's symptoma uh, symptomatic, I may try tazmetostat as a bridge to getting them to, uh, to their CAR T cell. Uh, you know, what I do after their CAR T cell, I think is also an interesting discussion, you know, has very high CR rates. Uh, um, and the durability does look good. So I'm not sure there's a place for kind of maintenance tasmetostat post-CAR T-cell uh, uh, yet, um, but I think that that's still something where we're 
uh, exploring in regards to clinical clinical trials. Yeah, I found this drug very well tolerated, except, you know, um, some uh, uh, women actually have alopecia with tazemetostatin, which is never encountered with men, which is a phenomenon that is not understood. Uh, but, you know, sometimes with patients, you can keep patients six months, one year uh, with a low tumor burden of disease, uh, patient who wants to be treated, who may not need, you know, uh, to reach a high CR rate. You know, there is one question, I mean, over the years, um, in the last 10, 15 years, we have seen the description of the uh, architectures, the mutation architecture of follicular lymphoma. We have seen data regarding the microenvironment, the T cells, the macrophages, all these kind of things. Um, any insight if this guide is into our practice today? Yeah, I don't, uh, you know, while they end up being great posters or great oral presentations at our meetings, I haven't seen any of them kind of infiltrate into my clinical practice. I think still, you know, one of the things I am looking for is that pod 24, you know, patient. I do believe they do exist. I'm not sure that they're the 20%. And those are the truly, you know, those are the bad, bad actors uh, in my, my clinic. I think there's also the young follicular lymphoma, which I think we have to be very strategic about also that are being diagnosed in the fourth or fifth decade of life. You're trying to, you know, put a plan in place that gets them to their actuarial, you know, life expectancy. And I think that we're in a realm of being very strategic, but I don't have that magic panel uh, to say you you are going to be a pod 24 or you're not going to be a pod 24. And I think we just have to be very conscientious, uh, but not, try, you know, not to uh, put our, our sci basic science researchers uh, and steer them away from that holy grail of, of follicular lymphoma, but just know that we're not there yet, in my opinion. Yeah, well, I think uh, this is very important. And uh, as you said, maybe a few things will come complicated or simple. We have to see. But the discussion regarding the categories of patient and how we manage them is a very nice segue to the next segment. So thank you for joining us for this uh, segment of recommendation to incorporate recent evidence into practice. Please be sure to click on the landing page of this activity to click your AMA, ANCC, ACP credit access supplemental slide, as well as all the topic segments and case scenarios. Thank you for attending this activity. We hope you found this podcast useful and educational. To receive continuing education credit and to download your printable certificate, please go to the activity page at practice.cme.com to complete the post-test and evaluation to receive continuing education credit.